welcome to this episode of St John's STEM Academy podcast. My name is Ali Paolino and this is an educational podcast designed for healthcare professionals where we discuss different issues and conditions in dermatology and provide you with practical information. I'll just quickly remind our listeners that the information that we discuss here is based on the latest evidence and expert opinion at the time of recording. The advice on this podcast may not be suitable for every patient and we suggest that any patient listening should consult their own physician regarding any medical issues. We're going to continue this episode, which is the second episode on cutaneous sarcoidosis. Here we'll be discussing systemic involvement in sarcoidosis and how to screen for it. And we're also going to cover treatment and how to optimise traditional systemic treatments. So now Dr Walsh is going to talk to us about how she works up patients who are diagnosed with cutaneous sarcoidosis to look for the presence of systemic disease. In terms of working up these patients, I like to divide it sort of into chunks according to the system uh, that we're looking at. And um, I've alluded to some of these systems before, but let's start with the common ones, so the lungs. And for pulmonary workup, and in this hospital, we uh, certainly do a chest X-ray and we do baseline lung function. If the chest X-ray comes back with an abnormality, I will order a CT chest, a high-res CT chest, and I will refer the patient to my respiratory colleagues for an opinion, or we will review them in a multidisciplinary setting. And this is, of course, all in addition to a very comprehensive review of systems. As you were taught when you, you know, were you were taught to take a history at medical school, I do do very regularly a review of systems with all of these patients uh, by questioning and then backed up with these investigations. So for pulmonary and um, in the clinic I might say to them you know have you noticed any change in your exercise tolerance are you still okay managing a flight of stairs no more out of breath than you would have been a year ago any cough any shortness of breath any mucus production so I'd ask some focused targeted history questions and then as I say backed up with some objective investigations like lung function and chest x-ray and uh, moving on to the eyes I guess the review of systems question I'd ask in my history would be, have you had any red eyes, painful eyes, injected eyes, any change in visual acuity? I guess my purpose in doing this is twofold. First of all, to see if they have any ophthalmic manifestations of sarcoidosis. But second of all, because one of the drugs which I may consider giving is hydroxychloroquine. Therefore, I want to be sure that at baseline, they haven't got any obvious ophthalmic defect. Also relevant, of course, to record if they've got any early cataracts, given that corticosteroid may form part of the treatment uh, cascade. With regard to ophthalmology, I tend to refer all of the new presentations of sarcoid for a baseline ophthalmic assessment by my colleagues in the ophthalmology department, simply because early uveitis um, can only really be detected or at least excluded fully on a slit lamp examination. With regard to cardiac involvement, while this is rare, it is the one that is always at the forefront of our minds in our MDT clinic, simply because it is the one that presents silently, which presents most catastrophically and which has long lasting irreversible side effects if it's not treated. Sarcoidosis involving the heart can cause either a cardiomyopathy, okay, a dilated cardiomyopathy, 
or it can cause an, a conduction defect leading to arrhythmias. And I can think of certainly cases of presentation which in which the presenting feature has been atrial fibrillation. I can think of two cases in which cardiac arrest has been the presentation of the cardiac sarcoid. And of course, one wants to avoid that presentation at all costs. And so as absolutely standard, all of our patients get an ECG and a cardiac echo performed by a technician who's trained in performing a particular sarcoid uh, sonographic protocol on the cardiac echoes. So their eyes are particularly tuned in to cardiac features that will be suggestive of sarcoidosis. And we're very fortunate to have a couple of cardiologists in our MDT who are experts on cardiac sarcoid. Cardiac sarcoid involvement would be one of the non-negotiable uh, indications for involving um, systemic treatment early in the course of disease. And of course, the screening questions there that I would ask in clinic would be, have you ever felt um, your heart to be racing? Have you ever heart, you felt your heartbeat to be irregular? Any feeling of missed beats? Any fits, falls or faints? Losses of consciousness? And while the answers to these questions are almost invariably no, 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 it's still is absolutely mandatory to do those cardiac investigations. Next, I suppose I'd probably think a little bit about endocrine, the endocrinological, endocrinological system. And I guess this is of particular relevance to my male patients, uh, because again, one of the massively under-recognized aspects of um, systemic sarcoidosis is um, involvement of the pituitary gland. And this most commonly manifests as a low level of testosterone in male patients. And just like the nasal stuffiness, this is not something that the male patient will volunteer unless asked directly about it in the history taking. So you should ask about libido, any, has the patient noticed any reduction in libido um, or any erectile dysfunction? Now, um, this does not, of course, automatically mean they will have low testosterone, but it is a good clue. Um, and that is, of course, something that can easily be measured on a blood test and can be quite easily replaced either with patches, topical gels um, or, if necessary, injection replacement. And um, it is certainly something that a lot of my male patients have labored with um, having not had it recognized as part of their disease for some time. And so now we do a very comprehensive endocrine screen at first presentation as well to take in both full sex hormone profiling, prolactin, thyroid function, and also um, a random cortisol level. Um, if any of these are abnormal, we may progress to do a pituitary MR, MR being the best modality to demonstrate sarcoidal infiltration of the pituitary. And, you know, this is of relevance again and worth um, actively looking for this manifestation of disease because it is potentially irreversible. So if you get sarcoidal infiltration of the pituitary gland that is long-standing, even treating the disease and clearing it um, may not lead to regain of function of that part of the pituitary. And, and I suppose one last thing that I'll, I'll, I'll talk about with regard to uh, review of systems and workup is bone and joint. Now, this is more common than you might think. And again, you have to tend to have to ask the question directly. Have you had any bony pain 
any joint pain um, over the last few months worse than usual or different to usual. Now, clearly, the big distinction has to be made with osteoarthritis, which is quite common in this, that age group. Um, but one classic presenting bone and joint sarcoid uh, feature is dactylitis. So swelling, acute swelling and pain of one of the digits, be it the digits of the hand or the digits of the feet. And when you see this acute dactylitis in a patient that you know to have cutaneous sarcoid, then you know that you have to get a chest x-ray pretty quickly, which should show a lytic lesion of bone. The radiologist may get anxious because it may resemble um, a lytic lesion such as one might see um, with a myeloma or a plasma cytoma, um, because they do look radiologically similar. And again, that is an automatic indication for a systemic treatment because sarcoid affecting the bone and joint is destructive and may cause permanent change and a secondary osteoarthritis. So it's important to treat aggressively when bone and joint disease is present. The other modality, ex-radiological modality, which is sometimes ordered more usually by my specialist rheumatology colleague than by me, is a PET-CT, which is very good for showing uh, bony involvement in, in, in sarcoidosis. So as you can see, these are not, uh, these are not short consultations at, uh, at, at first presentation. There's quite a lot of ground to cover given the various parts of the body that can be involved. Absolutely. Well, thank you for going through uh, so clearly and logically the types of questions that we should be asking our patients, as well as the baseline screening tests that we should be performing in all of these patients. I think that then brings us on to talking about the treatment of cutaneous sarcoidosis. We know it's a multi-system disease which varies in severity, so the decision of when to start treatment, which treatment and which speciality it's directed by is very much dependent on the predominant organ system that's involved. We're going to be focusing on the type of patients that we'd normally see in dermatology with predominantly cutaneous disease or patients who also have systemic disease, but it's quiescent uh, and their cutaneous disease still remains an issue. Um, so why don't we start with talking about the treatment of mild cutaneous disease? So I think with um, mild cutaneous disease, dependent on site, if we start at the very bottom of the kind of therapeutic ladder, um, there is a proportion of cutaneous sarcoidosis which isn't too thick, is on a site that's amenable to it and not too extensive, where topical corticosteroid can be considered. And um, generally speaking, you have to be prepared to use potent or highly potent. I would generally advocate it for use in situations where the sarcoid lesion is relatively thin, and where that lesion is not on skin that would be particularly susceptible to steroid atrophy. It can be useful for topical treatment. It's very useful for mucosal disease. I already alluded to the fact that it's very useful for um, nasal mucosal involvement to use the topical corticosteroid nasal sprays. But equally, if you get a sarcoidosis in the genital skin, so on the penis, or in the vulval area, that can be highly responsive to highly potent topical steroid 
um, of you know moderate duration, say two weeks, twice a day, and um, without the need to resort to um, to other systemic treatments. The other area where localized disease can be treated without using systemics is perhaps if it's localized to a scar or to something like a tattoo, where it's a very focal area of involvement. And in those scenarios, some intralesional steroid can be used, so by injection. So using something like 10 milligrams per mil triamcinolone um, injected to um, a scar sarcoid or involvement of a tattoo. Clearly, as with any steroid injection, you have to counsel the patient carefully about the risk of atrophy and the risk of um, post-inflammatory dispigmentation and dispigmentation induced by the steroid. And this is, of course, a particular cosmetic consequence if you're dealing with skin type 5 or 6. So you can get unpleasant, unsightly hypopigmentation through intralesional steroid injections um, given in skin type 5, 6. So it's, it requires a lot of careful counselling that does. Um, I don't tend to find tacrolimus that useful, I have to say. Um, you know, it has been written about, but I, I haven't had great success with that myself. For anything other than that localised or very thin disease or disease localised to um, uh, mucosal sites, then I would probably have a relatively low threshold for introducing um, a course of um, of oral corticosteroids. Um, and I typically do that somewhere in the region of half a milligram per kilogram or perhaps slightly less than that. Started at, at that dose and then tapered down by five milligrams a week to stop. So typically starting at 30 or 40 milligrams a day with proton pump inhibitor cover and bone protection if, if appropriate. Although I would say as a caveat that in the population with systemic sarcoid, you do always have to be very careful about prescribing vitamin D or calcium because of course they do have a tendency to hypercalcemia. Um, and so I would always seek advice. I usually get advice from my rheumatology colleagues about bone protection in the context of steroid therapy because this is such a, a, a difficult tightrope of an area and the speed with which uh, sarcoid patients can become hypercalcemic and require urgent corticosteroid, urgent re intravenous rehydration is quite frightening, actually. They can become sick very, very, very quickly. So steroid, oral steroid treatment. If I look at them, and let's say they're a patient with a degree of chronicity to their skin disease, I'm probably thinking they're going to need something beyond the steroid to hold their skin disease. And so I generally, concurrently, will start some hydroxychloroquine. And depending on the size of the patient, so less than 70 kilos, I'd probably give them 200 milligrams once a day. More than 70 kilos, I'd probably give them 200 milligrams BD. And I will generally, my practice is to start that at the same time as the steroid. Because with careful patient counselling about the ocular side effects, and with the very robust guidance we now have jointly between the, um, the, the British Association of Dermatologists and the Royal College of Ophthalmologists, I think it's a fantastically safe and useful drug. And it can provide very useful steroid sparing effect, particularly where it's predominantly skin disease. Other members of the MDT group that I work with are less enthusiastic about uh, hydroxychloroquine than I am. 
perhaps with the exception of the rheumatologists for whom they think it is a little bit helpful with the with the joints. But by and large, if they have another system like eyes or lungs, they are less keen on hydroxychloroquine because they don't really feel it helps a great deal. But certainly for skin and probably a bit for joint bone and joint disease, it is helpful. So what I'll typically do is start that steroid, start the hydroxychloroquine and then see them at about three months, the patient, um, so that I can see if the hydroxychloroquine has had a meaningful steroid sparing effect during the latter half of that period when they've actually come off the corticosteroid. And that will give me a good indication as to whether or not I need to consider further systemic therapy. And at that point, if they're not controlled, having come off their corticosteroid, I personally have a strong preference, knowing that this is a chronic disease, to not leave them on any corticosteroid at all. My preference is always to get them off the corticosteroid by using something like methotrexate is my favourite I have used azathioprine, I have used mycophenolate, but my experience is that you can successfully get the vast majority of patients off corticosteroid completely if you are persistent and valiant in your prescribing of methotrexate. And on this point, I would say it is worth, first of all, counseling the patient at the outset that you're going to ha- they're going to have to be patient with you because it's probably going to take about six months of the the methotrexate to get completely clear or near enough to clear. So it doesn't respond as quickly as we would like to see in psoriasis or perhaps in eczema. So you need to counsel them and it's kind of for the long haul. You need to be be kind of bold in your dosing is what I found. I think you need to go right up to 25 in a lot of circumstances. You, You won't always need it, but very often you will need to go up to 25. If they're not controlled on 25 orally, or indeed, if at a lower dose of oral methotrexate, they've not tolerated the side effects, I always, always, always try and persuade them to go to subcut. Even the needle phobics, I always say, look, you've really got to give this a go. And I can honestly say, I cannot think of a single treatment failure where the patient has stuck with me on that, where they have gone on and stuck with 25 subcut methotrexate for a full six months. They've all had partial or complete clearance on that. So I really do think it works. And I'm very unkeen to have people on long-term corticosteroids knowing what it can do. I'm also not super keen on using the biologics. Obviously, there is some data out there for using infliximab. I am not convinced of its benefit in the domain of the skin, really, or really any of the other biologics. They have looked at a myriad of things. They have looked at a premolast, which is a, a drug looking for a disease. They have looked at um, uh, Tannercept and there's no convincing results for cutaneous sarcoidosis. Okay, well, that's really helpful. I was going to ask if you feel that hydroxychloroquine is of some benefit, whether you continue that alongside methotrexate. It, it is my practice to do so. I do think it has, from clinical experience, a synergistic effect, helpful hand-in-hand effect with the methotrexate. It's also worth saying that if the patient, for some reason, does not tolerate the, methotre- uh, the hydroxychloroquine, or indeed if they are, let's say, contraindicated to an immunosuppressant, because we all encounter these patients sometimes that are Uh, in a tricky therapeutic um, category, I think it is worth considering adding in mepicrin, another anti-malarial, at 100 milligrams alternate days, which can be given instead of 
or as well as hydroxychloroquine. But obviously with the caveat that you need to be super careful about monitoring for um, maculopathy when you are giving dual anti-malarial treatment. Um, but the answer to your question is, yes, I endorse that as a therapeutic strategy. I have a clinical experience that points towards it being beneficial, but no p-values to show you that. Okay, fine, thank you. That's really helpful. One other thing I was going to ask was how you tend to monitor your disease response. Uh, do you use a disease severity score or do you do it through photos? So a combination thereof. And um, so uh, you having exhaustively looked through a lot of photographs of my sarcoid patients so are familiar with the um, uh, clinical and um, sarcoid, um, sorry, the cutaneous sarcoid um, activity um, and morphology index. So the C-SAMI, um, which is, I think, a very useful tool. And um, it is focused on the skin, so it only attempts to describe skin sarcoid. And as such, it is a tool which allows a lot of granularity, a lot of detail in how you record what the patient's disease is. Now, while numeric values I do find useful, and I do think in dermatology generally, we should strive uh, to have as many objective and reproducible and validated outcome measures as we can. It, it makes us much more robust in reporting our results. And I think that there is no substitute for a clinical picture, which you can eye up on your computer screen with the patient beside the computer. And I am really, really rigorous about getting clinical photographs um, of virtually every patient I see. And I, I, I make it absolutely clear to them that for me, that's a really important part of their clinical record. And it is useful to be able to show them the image because they're looking at themselves in the mirror day in, day out. They are less able to judge uh, how dramatic a change has been, but it is immensely satisfying to be able to throw up a picture of how they were six months before and, and just say, look, you know, see how far you've come, which is powerful in a way that showing them a series of numbers on a bit of paper will, will never be. But I, I, I think as part of a, a more global effort for us to have accountability and to be able to have measurable outcome measures, I definitely endorse using something like the, the CSAMI. There is also the uh, King's sarcoid score, which is one that tries to encapsulate a more multi-system um, approach, taking into account lung involvement, neurological involvement, eye involvement. Um, but the downside of that is it gives you less detail about the skin. Well, thank you very much for going through how you work up these patients and manage them in such detail. You've given us some really useful practical tips. Um, I found it incredibly enjoyable and I'm sure our listeners have too. So thank you very much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Like all our episodes, you can um, find a summary of what we've talked about today in addition to further learning material and references on our website, www.stjohnstermacademy.com. We'll also be uploading a new feedback form to our podcast page. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the podcast and how we can improve them for future. Thank you very much for listening. I'd just like to thank our sponsors, Abfee, Celgene, Lily, Janssen, Novartis, Sonovia and UCB. They don't have any influence over the material produced in these podcasts, but their support is hugely valuable to us. Thank you very much.